this week on The Futurists. If I look at my kids, they're never more than probably one meter away from their smartphone. And I mean, it's not too small that you would just, you know, lose it in, say, a shirt pocket or in, in a sofa. So I think that's probably a really convenient form factor. But I do believe that at one point it's going to be replaced by, by what we see. I mean, honestly, I've been wearing regular glasses since I was 14. And the moment that we can actually think about an augmented reality with the form factor of, you know, these lightweight devices that what, I don't know what percentage of the population wears glasses, but a hell of a lot more and more. I think that's the moment where we have the capability to really flip that to a new form factor. Well, here we are back in the hosting chair. Robert and I are both outside of the US right now. He's in Eindhoven. I'm at my apartment in Bangkok. Um, you know, for those of you who've listened to the show for a while, you know, I spend uh, some time here. Um, Robert is on here on a, a, a journey through Europe over the next few weeks. Um, what's Eindhoven like today, Robert? Eindhoven's fine. The weather's fabulous. It's, a, it's uh, unusually warm. But it's a perfect day for biking, and that seems to be what everyone's doing. What do you call unusually warm in Eindhoven? Uh, so here it would be in the 20s, um, but in the U.S. that would be in the 80s. Right. It was 34 um, degrees Celsius in Bangkok today, so <laughs> oh, that's, that's a bit hot. more unusually warm. <laughs> Stay off the bike. Get on exactly. a long-tail boat. No, we got a beautiful uh, pool here. So, um, and joining us uh, for the show today is Peter Hinson. Um, Peter and I met about ten years ago, actually, through uh, our friends at Swift at Cybos. Uh, he's a serial entrepreneur, a keynote speaker. He's been involved in the startup world, um, but he's a thought leader on radical innovation, leadership, and the impact of, of digital on society and business. He lectures currently at the London Business School. He's uh, lectured uh, also at MIT in Boston. He founded uh, a future-focused organization called NextWorks to help organizations adapt. Um, his, uh, his, some of his books, The New Normal, The Day After Tomorrow, and his uh, upcoming book, The Phoenix and the Unicorn. I'm sure we're going to get into that today. Peter Hinson, welcome to The Futurists. Thank you very much. And, and thank you, Brett and uh, Robert, for having me. It's Happy to have you here. Mm-hmm. Great to meet you. Tell us about the room that you're in, because uh, for those who are watching video, you'll see there's an awful lot of Apple computer equipment behind you. Yeah, I I call it the Apple Chapel, and and, and Brett's actually been there. Um, I'm one of the largest collectors, I think, of Apple computers in in the world. Um, I I learned how to program on an Apple II when I was 11, and that love for both the technology and for the brand never disappeared. And I think contrary to many people, I never threw anything away. So (laughs) it was cluttering our house like crazy. It was driving my wife up the wall. And then three years ago, I had the chance to buy a church here in Belgium, an abandoned church that uh, I renovated. And this was, I think, finished probably three or four days before we had the first lockdown. And I thought, damn, what am I going to do? So I started using the Apple Chapel as my office and I did webinars for more than two years. And honestly, uh, I I don't think I'll ever have a better office than an abandoned, renovated church filled with vintage computers. So tech is the new religion. And I think that's what this Apple Chapel really shows. It, it is quite a spectacular location, Peter, I'll give you that. And um, your your, um, your love for it and your enthusiasm um, for all things Apple is clear, not not just with the, uh, obviously, the the incredible background we can see this, you know, um, but just also you know, the passion with which you speak about how, how this project came to be. So um, fantastic. And speaking of Apple, we passed a big milestone this week. Uh, the iPhone is now 15 years old. Isn't that crazy? And it's the world's first trillion-dollar product. So it's actually quite an extraordinary milestone in the sense that, um, you know, Brett, when I give talks now, I ask people, how many people have an iPhone? And it's, it's extraordinary how many people raise their hand in the room. Uh, of course, that's you know going to be more likely the case in Europe and in the U.S., less likely the case in Asia and other parts of the world. Uh, where, where Android phones are more prevalent. But what's extraordinary about that is now you can walk into a room and say, try to spot the Windows computer. <laughs> try to spot the IBM computer, right? 15 years ago, before the iPhone, the world was dominated by Windows. Today, the world seems to be dominated by Apple 
and then everyone who's trying to be the next Apple, I suppose. But along the way, an awful lot has changed. It's been a rather extraordinary ride the last 15 years. Peter, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I mean, one of the things is that I, I, I as, as, as you can see behind me, I collect a lot of the old computers. But one of my fascinating things that I collect is the documentation. And I think that tells a part of the story that isn't always told. So one, one of the favorite objects that I have, and, and th that's probably my most cherished one, this is the prospectus that um, uh, Morgan Stanley used to take Apple public back in wow. 1979. So the this S1. is a, Oh yeah, the S1. And this is the document that they used to sell the first, the first 4,600,000 shares of Apple Computer Inc. And what is, is truly fascinating about that, when you talk about the trillion dollar product, one of the items in here is of course, how big is the market going to be? Because in those days, nobody knew what a computer was. And the fascinating thing about this document is that in the document says, we actually believe at Apple that personal computers might at one day become a billion dollar market. A billion! I mean, that's what Apple does on a bad Wednesday morning, just online. Yeah? So in terms of being able to look at the future, I think these types of historical documents are really interesting to observe. One thing, again, throwing the history at it, one thing I like to do is, uh, you, you might have seen me use this in a keynote previously, is um, talk about the compute power we have in an iPhone today compared with uh, a notable computer that was a, a key part of human history being the Apollo guidance computer from Apollo 11. The current iPhone has approximately 250 million times the processing power of the Apollo 11 computer that took Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin and Michael Collins to the moon. That is incredible um, progress to think about. It. And of course, you know, it fits in a much smaller unit than the Apollo, Apollo guidance computer, but... Uh, What's astonishing about that is it doesn't just make your um, personal computer irrelevant in a lot of contexts. It's actually making a lot of products irrelevant. I, I talk a lot about the way the phone has vaporized so many different devices or it's sort of sucked the functionality of different devices into it. Peter, tell me about this form factor. Since you're so interested in form factors, how long are we going to be living with this, this uh, shiny rectangle that we stick in our pocket? Do you think that will the smart glass persist? is going to vaporize the smartphone, yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I think um, the nice thing about um, this, the, the form factor is that it's probably gotten to the point where you don't lose it too much. If I look at my kids, they're never more than probably one meter away from their smartphone. And I mean, it's not too small that you would just, you know, lose it in, say, a shirt pocket or in, in a sofa. So I think that's probably a really convenient form factor. But I do believe that at one point it's going to be replaced by, by what we see. I mean, honestly, I've been wearing regular glasses since I was 14. And the moment that we can actually think about an augmented reality with the form factor of, you know, these lightweight devices that what, I don't know what percentage of the population wears glasses, but a hell of a lot more and more. I think that's yeah. the moment when we have the capability to really flip that to a new form factor. Interesting battleground coming up because of course, uh, you know, Facebook or now Meta is investing heavily in a new form factor for your face, whether that's glasses or a head-mounted display for VR. 64% uh, of the population wears glasses. There's the 64, answer. 64, exactly. Okay. So and we, we've crossed, you know, we've crossed the halfway point. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so Facebook is going to try to get you to wear a computer on your face, but I suspect it's going to happen with this uh, long-rumored AR goggles that a Apple's developing. I think they're going to be an extension of the phone, the same way the Apple Watch is an extension of the phone. In other words, they're going to try to entrench their monopoly or their dominance in this form factor for a bit longer. Uh, they have too many. They have too much to lose. There's too much at stake for Apple, and also, frankly, the head-mounted display space. Uh, those are going to be underpowered um, initially. So it's better to put the heavy-duty processing power and also the connectivity. You know, the network connectivity. Put that in the phone where it belongs right now. Your Apple iPhone already has ultra wideband, so they'll be able to transmit data at high rates to headsets or glasses. And I suspect this is going to be a big battle between Apple and Meta uh, for what is the form factor for the future, which is the dominant device. Apple's going to try to reinforce their smartphone dominance. I, I agree. But, and I think if they get that right, that could be probably their next trillion dollar product yeah, if they get yeah. that right. And they've been 
mulling around for a long time. Everybody, every single worldwide developers conference, people say, oh, finally, they're going to release it and they never do. So yeah, they really know how to you know, keep the suspense going. But I think the moment they do, I think that is going to be a game changer. So it's uh, true. I'm, I'm preparing I mean, it's... a whole new chapel for that. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. The last earnings call, everybody expected Apple to talk at the worldwide developer conference. They were supposed to talk about these new AR glasses that we've been hearing so much about through the rumor mill. And they very noticeably did not mention a word about it. And I think part of that is Apple has very smart strategic planning and very smart people who deal with investors. And I think they noticed that when Facebook talked about their investment, or I should say when Meta talked about their investment during the earnings call um, and mentioned that they were pouring $10 billion a year into VR with no re- no visible results, they got smacked and a yeah, quarter of the company was erased overnight. I think Apple's very cautious about their position. So they're like, we're not going to talk about AR just yet. It's like, let's talk about becoming a bank and putting more banking functionality into the phone. <laughs> so Peter, I do want to get into, um, you know, you, you've done a lot with adaptation um, from a business perspective, from a personal perspective, even just when, when we look at your subtitles of, of your books, uh, the net, uh, the network always wins. You talk about surviving in the age of uncertainty. Um, you know the new normal. Explore the limits of the digital world. Um, how to survive in times of radical innovation? From your book, the day after tomorrow. So you you are thinking often about adaptability of humanity to the rate of change that we're undergoing. We've just been talking about that from a compute perspective. But um, when was it that you realized that your skill or that your passion was for this intersection of change and human behavior and sort of um, being an architect of, of that or navigating that and, and you know, decided to uh, make that your, your core focus as a futurist? Well, I, I think um, um, I'm a technologist by training, so I'm an engineer, um, and and I think for most of my, you know, young life, that, that's what I wanted to do. I just loved technology, and and I wanted to see what technology could bring and what it could do, and and I think um, my biggest weakness is that I get easily enthusiastic about new things. I mean, I, I just love shiny new things, which is a good thing as an engineer. But I think um, the the reason I got into what I do now is I when I graduated, I started working for a company called Alcatel. And I don't know if you remember that, but it was a big French company building telecoms infrastructure. They later merged with Lucent, um, you know, who owned Bell Labs. And when I when I had a chance to join that company, I thought, wow, this is one of the coolest technology companies in the world. That's where I see myself actually building out a career. That's where I want to live for the rest of my professional life. When I joined, I had one ambition. I wanted to be the chief technology officer of that company at one point. But when I joined, um, this is the time, early 90s, when there was no World Wide Web. The World Wide Web actually burst onto the scene a few years later. And in my personal life, I got hooked onto that new technology. I mean, I started building websites and I started understanding how to program, you know, and, and, and construct the scripts to you know, generate the HTML. And I just love that. And th- the story is that you know, I, that obsession was like a few year, a few hours every evening. And then it became an all nighter. And then at a certain moment in 1995, I went to, you know, Alcatel in the morning. I had not slept. I had just been debugging a website all night. I walk out of the elevator and the chief technology officer of, you know, Alcatel sees me staggering out of that elevator and says, please come into my office. And he sits me down and he asks me the most important question everybody's, anybody's ever asked me in my professional life. He said, are you on drugs? And I said, no, no, I'm, I'm hooked on the World Wide Web. And he said, what's that? And I showed him. And at that moment, he said, nah, just if you have any hope of having a normal career, just knock off this. This will never work. This is Mickey Mouse <laughs> stuff. Focus on your real work. And that's the moment, you know, Brett and Robert, when I decided to quit that afternoon and start my first startup and do something with the World Wide Web. And I had no idea what I was going to do. 
But for me, it was earth shattering that, you know, some of the people that I really respected, even in the form of technology, actually didn't see a huge radical shift that was happening in something that I saw very, very clearly. Anyway, long story short, I, I spent 15 years in startups. Ironically, I sold my first startup to Alcatel five years later. Five years later, the same guy called me up and said, well, you were right about this worldwide web thing. You know, can we buy your company? Which I did. But it was fascinating to see how large organizations had huge difficulty in actually not just understanding the future, but then acting on the future. And after 15 years of startups, that became really my, my life's work. I mean, the last 10 years, I've spent mostly with very traditional companies, whether they be banks or retailers or you know, insurance companies, and trying to help them figure out how to make sense of the future, but also how to not just get them aware, but how to get them to act on the future. And that's been, I think, probably the fil rouge through my work. That's been the fil rouge through my books. When I wrote that book, The Day After Tomorrow, I had the, you know, in, 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 you, you've probably both had that, right? You're in a workshop and you think, what the hell am I going to do and write on that flip chart? And I put something on that flip chart and said, how much time do you spend on today, tomorrow, and the day after tomorrow? And what is today? It's the hundreds of emails you get that eat up all of your time. What's tomorrow? And then I said, it's like the budget. It's the classic way of looking at the future. The budget is the yearly sarcastic corporate ritual where people put fake news in Excel that never works. And then there's the day after tomorrow, new ideas, new innovations, new business models, things that change the rule of the game. And I asked them, how much time do you spend on that? And they, everyone in the room said 70, 20, 10. But the reality when you actually start to examine was not 70, 20, 10, it was 93, seven and zero. And then I realized that if you really wanted to have the capacity to reinvent what you did as an organization, you needed to focus on that day after tomorrow. And that really has been the last 10 years of my life, trying to work with these large established organizations. And there is, in my opinion, a huge difference between showing them and making them aware and that is still relatively okay to do in the job that we do, but then getting them to act on that and to actually leverage the power of the day after tomorrow, that is a whole different kettle of fish. No, I was just going to follow up with that, Peter. It, it, you know, like your conversation at Alcatel and, you know, um, the the fact that you've chosen this course of coaching people on preparing for the day after tomorrow. Um why is it when we can look back at 300 years of technological disruption and technological development and we can see that every time technology wins, and this is a point that many of our guests make in, in respect to adaptation, why is it then that so many people, when they look at something like the World Wide Web, just discount it? Or like at the moment, um, you know, crypto and fintech and, and things like that that are, you know, potentially disrupting the space I'm in, you know, so many traditionalists just like, yeah, it's, it's much to do about nothing. Instead of, you know, inevitably, you know, the, the, like history teaches us that it's all going to get disrupted and vaporized as, as, uh, as Robert talks about. Well, I, and, and I think to that point, just, just two things. I mean, one is I think it's really an appetite for risk, which is a really important element of that. And honestly, if, if you know, when I was 25 and, and I decided that afternoon to just quit my job at Alcatel and start on my own, I, I didn't know what the risks were. I just did that because it felt right. But I'm sure that if you're a senior executive and you've always been doing it that way, that's maybe not the risk spectrum you want to get into. And that was something when I look back in the first 15 years of that startup life, I mean, I was on the receiving end of venture capital. I mean, Rhett, you know that business you know, better than anyone else. And this is a really tricky thing because you need, you're convinced of something and you want to find other people who will back you up. And that's what the whole VC industry does really, really well. They make right. really risky bets on people who have a dream more than anything else, who have a belief more than anything else. And the venture capital is, is a is a pretty tricky industry. I always call VCs, you know, loan charts with Teslas. I mean, that's basically what they are, but they're capable of actually taking huge risks and you know it pays off quite handsomely but they also know that if they invest in 10 ideas 
seven are just going to die. And the whole idea is to let them die as quickly as possible. Two are going to be mediocre performances. One is going to be the, the ballpark that you know takes the money home. A few years ago, I joined the advisory board of a private equity firm. And I'd never done private equity. And I thought, oh, that's, I just want to understand what it means. And they invest in traditional companies, traditional industries, and they make them a little bit better. And I remember in my first meeting, I made a complete fool of myself. There were 10 companies in their portfolio. Nine were doing really well. And one was a mediocre performance, and everybody was panicking about that. Well, my God, that was an introduction to a completely different way of looking right. at a segment of that risk spectrum. And I think in corporates, what I've seen is there are so many mechanisms. There is such a numbness that takes over where you are blind or really, really scared to get into that more adventurous side of risk-taking. That for me, Brett, is probably the number one reason why there is such uh, a possibility of creative destruction. I mean, right. I, I had the great pleasure. I had the book here. Um, I did some work with Carlota Perez. I don't know if you've uh, you know, worked with Carlota, but she's the one who wrote that book, Technological Revolutions of Financial Capital. She's been studying right. these S-curves and she says, it's all over the place. It's industrial revolution, steam, railways, mass production, over and over again. But one of the things that she also notices is the cycles are getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And that's why I think if you want to get corporates, enterprises to think about new ways to adapt that risk spectrum, they're going to have to realize that some of their timelines that they used to have, say, 20, 30, 40 years ago, are not there anymore. And that's why I think we have to completely rethink that whole paradigm of thinking about the future. The challenge is that VCs, of course, are rewarded for betting on disruption. And nowadays, they'll bet huge amounts because they're trying to disrupt entire industries, not just a company. Uh, so that makes sense, perhaps, for them. For a company, when the company, you know, a traditional company bets on disruption, they're really betting against themselves. And there are many, many conservative voices that are going to come forth inside of the organization and begin to lecture you about why that's never going to work or why that'll cut off the core source of revenue. And therefore, it's not time yet. We should wait. CEOs are struggling, I think, to make the correct decision. Nobody wants to be the person to blow up their own company. On the other hand, nobody wants to miss the boat on the opportunity to change, and certainly none of them want to be the subject of disruption, or the object, I should say, of disruption. Um, it's a very difficult balance in, in, within a company. Uh, Peter, one thing I've noticed is that companies often, company leadership will often try to create an um, innovation team. They'll sort of dump the problem on the desk of a small team, as if that team has the power to change the company. And what I found is if corporations don't have support at the very top, if the, if the leadership doesn't come from the C-suite and everyone's aligned and the financial incentives, meaning the bonus structure, is aligned towards destabilization and change and embracing new ideas, then it's never going to happen because there are just too many videos, too many voices of dissent inside of the company that can slow it down. That's a mouthful. Why don't you respond to that? And then we'll have to go to break shortly after that. Absolutely. And, and the short answer is completely agree. The, the longer answer is, let me give you one example. I mean, um, being in an Apple chapel, a lot of the technology that Apple actually used to you know, take it to the next level from the Apple II to eventually the Macintosh was all technology that they stole from Xerox. And Xerox is probably the company. If you if you go back in Silicon Valley and go to Xerox Park, which is their you know far future research, it's a shrine to actually inactivity, because Xerox was a company that had revolutionized one industry, namely you know photocopying, and then they put their smartest people in Silicon Valley, gave them an almost unlimited budget, and said invent something. You know what happens if you put a big bunch of nerds together with unlimited budget and say invent the future? They will. Laser printer, graphical user interface, personally, all invented by Xerox, never commercialized. The best book on that is called Fumbling the Future, um, how Xerox invented and then ignored the first personal computer. I believe that if you read this book and do everything completely different, you'll be fine. I mean, that's that, that I think is the logical conclusion. But it shows that many companies, when they isolate their future forward-looking, they're never capable of changing the mothership. And I think if you really want to act on the day after tomorrow, that's what you need to do. Else you're just going to frustrate these people beyond belief. Fantastic. You are listening to The Futurists. It's with Brett King and myself, Rob Tersik, as your co-hosts. And today we're speaking to Peter Hinson, an entrepreneur, a future thinker, a speaker, 
and the author of a number of books. He's been telling us about the day after tomorrow, and soon we'll hear about the phoenix and the unicorn after the break. Please stay tuned. After this, we'll be right back. Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Welcome back to The Futurists. I'm Brett King, and I host The Futurist with Robert Tursek. He's uh, we're both outside of the U.S. right now, but we have Peter Henson with us, uh, joining us, talking about um, you know how corporations tackle this issue of thinking about adaptability uh, and and how the culture of these organizations uh, must form to be able to successfully navigate the future. So, Peter, um, just in terms of y- your role and the work you do at the corporate level, at the board level, and and in terms of this this advising space you know what is your methodology for you know a looking at the future and picking those hot topics that that different organizations need need to build awareness for and how do you encourage that cultural development from the top down to to be more adaptable yeah and i think um if i go back to that model we talked about earlier the the day after tomorrow model I like to use that as a little bit of a framework. Actually, the model's not complete, but it's not just today, tomorrow, the after tomorrow. The, you know, the element I always ask is that there's a big red square next to that with negative energy, which you know, is typically the shit of yesterday because it's the mess of the past. It's the legacy, the technical debt that is often really dragging companies down. But when I talk about that day after tomorrow, what I really try and do is force a management team or force a board to say, okay, why don't you spend a significant amount of time for you to actually understand what that day after tomorrow could be. And when I talked earlier about the the 10%, that might be a lot because 10% of an executive time or a board time is a lot of time. But even if it's just 5% of getting out of your normal day routine, your normal, you know, spreadsheets, milestones, and budgets, and thinking about what could be the game changers in your industry. And that 5% might be crucial for you to spot things and to, to pick up things. But then you have to act on it. And I think that's where, you know, going back to Robert's question about isolating the innovation, that's the worst thing that you can do. I picked up a model, which I call the hourglass model, which I really like. The We all know what the shape of an hourglass is, but that that top part of the hourglass, the wide part is, this is where you sense that day after tomorrow. This is where you pick up the signals in the organization. Then you need to reduce the sauce as that top part actually starts to taper to the middle. This is where you experiment and figure out what is relevant for you in the organization. And then it falls into the bottom part of the organization. This is where you run and scale and focus on the bottom line and actually scaling solutions. And what I always do with companies is say, how much of your resources, talent, people are spending that top part in sense and try and how much is focused on run and scale. And then a lot of companies start to figure out that they really need to beef up that capacity in that top part of the hourglass just to be able to understand what that day after tomorrow could mean. The second thing, and that goes back to Robert's question about the isolation, I see a lot of companies who do have that top part, but it's not connected to that bottom part. And then it basically just falls on bearing ground and nothing happens with that. And that is incredibly frustrating for those people who are in the top part of that hourglass. So that combination of of forcing them to think about the day after tomorrow and then trying to figure out what it means into the reshaping of their hourglass inside an organization is something that I found that is a very powerful mechanism for them to think and trigger and even put resources, people's numbers and money on that. Because if you don't do that, it won't happen by itself. I'm sure you you, you both have had that where you get invited to like a, a strategic offsite, you know, where two days in the summer, they go to a wonderful resort and sure, talk sure. about the future. And then I always say at the end, I hope you don't ask me back. 
Because I've often had that where a year or two years later, they ask me back and I think, you know what? I'm going to go. I want to see what they've done. And they've done nothing. And I say, but yeah. why do you ask me back? Like, oh, it was so nice to talk to the future about you. It's like going to a zombie movie, a horror movie, <laughs> but then you go back home and you think that could never happen to me. That is the worst possible outcome. Actually, you know, the, there's an interesting thing. I mean, the three of us, uh, you know, and, and many of the people we have on the show, um, you know, we're constantly thinking about the future. And, and as a result, you know, we do view the world in different ways from normally well-adjusted people, <laughs> right? You could argue, right? Um, because we're always looking at these trends. We're looking at, um, you know, we just talked about AR glasses. You know, we've all been watching that space for years now because we're very interested in the impact of that. Um, whereas I don't think the average person sort of gives it a second thought. So, um you know, is there an element of that which is training people to think like a futurist? Is is that a core skill that a CEO should have? Do you think, Peter? I I, I do, and I think um, and I think at this moment we probably agree that in almost every geography on the world, the the education system is the slowest moving part of society. That is is you know, almost everywhere the case, and especially also in business education. As I said, I've been teaching at London Business School for a while now, and uh, I mean, I, I do most of it in, in the executive education, but if I have a chance to talk to the MBA group, I always do that. And I always make a really corny joke in the beginning. I say, well, really glad to be here. And I'm really glad that you've chosen for the perfect, perfect education for the last century. And the reason is that a lot of the subjects we teach in an MBA are about optimizing a current situation, but not about being open-minded to uncertainty or even dealing with uncertainty where you don't have all the ingredients. And I think that's the type of education or re-education we're going to have to do because I, I talk more and more about the never normal. I wrote that book, The New Normal, 10 years ago, but we're in the never normal. We, we see a constantly changing world. And I think if we're not going to train you know, the next generation of leaders to deal with that type of uncertainty and to make bold moves and then be flexible on the details, but have a different way of dealing in, in getting that message out, in getting the troops rallying behind that, that's a different type of leadership. And I really believe that might be one of the big challenges that we need to have. We need to reconnect and rethink how we train that next generation of leaders in that never normal. One of the things that's happening right now as we speak, uh, we're recording this in mid-2022, and there is a generation of leaders that, that's on the brink of retirement. And these folks are not digital natives. They didn't grow up with digital technology. In many cases, they don't have your background, Peter. They're not engineers. They don't write software. Some of them aren't even comfortable typing. They'll handle email. But not all enjoy digital technology. And I'm referring to specifically, I can make an example to a company I worked with a few years ago, major automaker one of the biggest in the world. Everyone who's successful in that company loves cars. In fact, they love internal combustion engines. That's why they work for a motor company. So no one in that organization is enthusiastic about electric vehicles or worse, autonomous vehicles. These are people that love to drive cars for a living, right? That's what they do, that's why they're successful. In a culture like that, if you're gonna be talking about a future that is disruptive, in other words, autonomous vehicles, self-driving cars, uh, maybe doing away with cars and using some sort of like taxi system, uh, you know, rethinking public transport in general, you're really swimming against the stream. You're really going up against the mainstream thought. Uh, you're really challenging management in a way that might not be great for your career. Peter, what advice do you have when you meet someone like that inside of one of the companies that you're working with who takes you aside at a coffee break, at a lunch break and says, hey, Peter, I got to tell you, this place, the words you're giving us are landing on dead soil. This, these seeds are never going to grow. Let me tell you how bad it is here. What do you tell them? Well, I, I, let me make a distinction there. And I think um, I've often seen that and heard that. And sometimes you have people who come up to you and say, what, what, what could we do to change this? And sometimes I have to say, well, maybe there's nothing you can do. Maybe you have to find another place to actually make it happen. And one of the things that I've seen, and that is, I think, really weird, is that um, and, and I, I wrote the book, uh, The Phoenix and Unicorn, also based on what I'd seen at Walmart, for example, because Walmart is a company that when I first met them five, six years ago, I, I, I was not really impressed. I thought, well, you know, they're old school and, you know, retailer of the past. And then and I got more and more enthusiastic about their willingness to change. 
And to see a company like that fight back against the Amazons, trying to reconfigure what they do. And, and honestly, they are now more and more in a mode where they think, you know what, for 50, 60 years, we had people coming to us. We're now going to have to go to them. It's a fundamental rethinking of what they do. But I think one of the things that I've loved about working with a company like Walmart is they are capable of developing a long-term vision. And that for me has been one of the most important characteristics when I see the opportunity or not to act on the day after tomorrow. And one of the strange things about a company like Walmart is they're publicly traded. I mean, you can see the stock price every day, but the Walton family still has the controlling stake in the company. And mm. they are not there for this fiscal quarter or this right. fiscal year. They are really in it for the long game. Intergenerational wealth. Yeah. Absolutely. And when I see them empowering a CEO like Doug McMillan, and, and I'll, Doug is, I, I'll just quickly give that example. Doug is the, the CEO of Walmart. He used to run Walmart International before he did that. Walmart International is in Brazil and Canada and Mexico, but India, Flipkart, China. And what Doug saw there in the changing of retail gave him a perfect view that it's not just fighting the guys from Seattle. This is about a whole retail landscape that is fundamentally going to change. Yeah. And I think with that baggage and then that, that leash on life to think about the long game from the family, that creates a perfect environment where you can actually act on the day after tomorrow. But isn't that what all corporations need to be doing now, especially with climate change and AI and all of these things impacting us, shouldn't we have longer term plans? Shouldn't humanity be thinking about 20 year, 50 year, 100 year projects? I mean, we used to do that back in the Renaissance, right? But, <laughs> what, you know, why can't humanity have that type of, uh, you know, inspirational, like the only corporate leader, you know, you know, Fortune 100, you know, leader that's really thinking like that these days, you could argue Tim Cook maybe, right, um, but is Elon Musk, you know, like these really big plans for humanity, you know, what do we have to do to change it from this focus on next quarter's balance sheet and next year's budget and, you know, the next year, you know, in two years the election cycle to really big picture stuff? Peter? Well, in no, Musk's case, you, you know he's telling the truth, right? He believes it to his core. Right, absolutely. Uh, I think if you're talking about a very typical corporate suit who's grown up through the ranks of the company, if he were to say the exact same words about transporting humans to the planet Mars, those words would fall flat and ring hollow. So well, that's part I, of the problem. In, in, in a way, yes. But let me give you another example, because the nice thing about Elon is that is a unicorn, right? I mean, he starts from scratch, has no legacy. He can really build a completely new culture on the future from day one. And, and I think keeping that day one spirit is essential if you want to be able to, to have that capability. You're right about the corporate side, which is often completely different. Let me give you one example. I don't know if you've read this book, Net Positive by Paul Pullman. So Paul Pullman used to be the CEO of Unilever. Now, Unilever is one of the, the huge giants in the world. And... and I think when he was running Unilever, he was one of those executives that did try to fundamentally make a difference. He said, you know what, we're, we're just going to screw up our planet if we keep doing what we're doing. And he, for the decade that he ran Unilever, said, we're going to focus on ESG. He took you know, the sustainable development goals and said, you know what, I want to double the business, but I want to half our environmental impact, and I want to do more good for society. That's the whole you know, just to the book, net positive. He says, you know what? I, one of the, I had a chance to meet him earlier this year. He said, I hate companies who say, oh, in 2050, we'll be net zero. He says, that's horrible. You know, you should do something now. I mean, one of his statements is, is like, he says, it's like a serial killer. If you're used to killing, well, I say 10 people a year and you say, oh, you know what? I'm going to cut down to only killing three people a year. Is that a good thing? No, you have to become <laughs> net positive. You have to do more good than less bad. Anyway, during his 10-year tenure at Unilever, that's exactly what he did. And he was incredibly successful. But when he left, you could clearly see that everything he started to build started crackling down again. For example, one of the things he did is he said, you know what, I'm not going to give you quarterly guidance anymore on the stock. If you want me to think about the long term, don't every quarter just, you know, figure out, I need a long-term capability. Great. But the moment he left, they went back to quarterly reporting. 
Now we have shareholder activists who are actually cracking him down. And I think that's the, the really, if you don't have that inherent structure to keep that long-term game going, then even yeah. if you have a wonderful executive who actually can explain that to the market, I think yeah. it's going to fall apart once that person isn't there anymore. Yeah, you need a culture of innovation, a culture that loves innovation and is comfortable with being uncomfortable. You know, a culture where people aren't that concerned about certainty. And a lot of people are not comfortable with uncertainty. Right? A lot of people, that, that causes great distress. Um, you know, finance departments love to have quarterly projections that go out that they can feel very confident about so they can communicate to investors. Salespeople are, are tasked with that job of generating that sales pipeline, right? So that's how they're evaluated. That's what they're trained to do. Product people love to have a product pipeline where they can look five years out into the future. So most people prefer stability. And, and I think if you're going to work for someone like Elon Musk, who's not afraid to break some glass, you're probably a self-selecting group. You're a member of a self-selecting group that right. says, okay, I could deal with a disruptor in charge because that's what I want as well. And you start, he starts to build a culture that appreciates excellence and maybe um, breaking through limitations, solving problems from first principles, as he always says. Uh, you're going to attract a certain kind of person who's frustrated in a traditional company that wants to achieve at that level. And so he kind of creates his own culture. So if it all depends on a single executive, that's not sustainable. No, but I do think um, I, I do think the pendulum is turn, you know changing. I, I think um, that long corporate culture we've had, we are now you know paying down on that debt of that culture of of super capitalism and you know um, resource conversion and so forth. Um, I I don't know whether you guys saw, but Stephen Fry just released this. Um, video supporting Extinction Rebellion in the UK. It's a really interesting um, piece. But, um, you know, we are starting to see a groundswell of pushback against corporations that are bad for humanity, right? And I do think that as climate change accelerates, I do think that that's going to become more common. Um, and I do think that, you know, if you're in the fossil fuel industry or if you're in the, the, the um, you know, pharma sector, um, you know, and you can't very quickly turn that around to show the good that you're doing for human society, I think in the 2030s you're screwed, right, as a, as a corporation. Um, but, um, you know, and I, I think that, that sort of, that's part of what's missing. Um, but, uh, you know, what I like about Elon's approach to that it, 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 or his, his business side of things is he, he he talks about getting up in the morning and be ex, being excited about what humanity is doing. And I think that's another element of we've, mm -hmm. We've lost a lot of that. Like, yeah, can you be excited about the next product innovation? Sure. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, where is it taking us? Yeah. In the U.S. right now, everyone's focused on status quo and maintaining the status quo, whether that's the right move or whether that's a suicidal move. Uh, it's no accident that the three of us are having this call and we're coming from countries that are directly threatened by climate change. You're in Bangkok where there's a possibility that Bangkok's going to sink under the Chow Prao River sometime in the next 50 years. I'm in the Netherlands right now. Obviously, climate change, the, the challenge speaks for itself. I think that's probably also true for Belgium, uh, where Peter is. In the United States right now, there's almost a willful denial of some forces that are shaping the future. We're telling ourselves a story that we don't need to adapt or respond. When I flew out of the U.S., there were five major climate events happening wildfires, record heat waves, uh, gigantic storms that washed away the bridges in Yellowstone Park and a huge electrical, sto electrical storms on the East Coast. Yeah. And yet everybody was saying, look, this is okay. We can deal with this for all systems go. This notion of the status quo is good enough and we can put our resources into protecting well, you, that. But you've got like Texas, and you know, like it, their grid is going to fail at some point, right? And yeah. the well, same is happening in Australia right now. You know, it ha it, it previously did in, in Adelaide where you were, right? But it's happening in, in uh, you know, Victoria and New South Wales there, all because you know, these conservative governments have not committed to sort of renewables and, um, you know, uh, building up the grid. I know we're going off 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 track a little bit, but... Like, no, but these forces are forces yeah. that shape the future. You've got to respond to them, right? It's a, it's an absolute necessity. People tell themselves a, a lullaby that says, look, you can stay asleep. You don't have to wake up. You don't have to change. 
Peter, we're not letting well, you get a word in edgewise. Let, we should look, really let him speak. Peter, let's 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 do it this way. Um, what excites you about the future? And that, let let's be a bit sci-fi here. Let, let, I want to I want you to go full futurist on us here. You know, take us out 20, 30, you know, fifty years. What is it about the future that really excites you for you know humanity? And you know, w- what are you really interested in seeing develop? Well, I mean, being a technologist at heart, I, I think um, I still get that giddiness when I see all the new opportunities that technology provides. The only maybe sad note in that is that I, I, I think if I really wanted to have full full autonomy on my career, I, I would have wanted to be the, the chief engineer on, on Star Trek Enterprise. I mean, that, on, that, that would have been my ideal dream job. I mean, just being a nerd in a starship, right? I, I'm not going to see that in my lifetime. I mean, that is probably the, the most depressing part. But I still have that enormous enthusiasm that technology is going to be able to provide a better world. But I think my, my main concern, and I think what I really hope that we're going to be able to do in this century is that we're going to find global mechanisms to deal with more and more global issues. And I think that is something where, look at something really mundane like the cloud, right? I mean, there is is no denial that that is a much better, more efficient, more scalable, more environmentally sound way to think about computing power than everybody having their own little device under their desktop. But then you get into the legal issues where we have cloud providers, you have data sovereignty. Data residency, and, yeah, yeah. And the whole idea of, oh, it's in the cloud, but you have to show that it's on a server in Europe or in the US, that is just nuts. And it shows yeah. that more and more we're seeing technology actually bounce against those old national boundaries where on a legal concept, it makes sense to do that 150 years ago. Fiat currency is another example, yeah. Exactly. And I think that's where we're going to have to figure out how to overcome that. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Ian Bremmer. I had the chance to work with Ian on a few like occasions. Him, yeah. He has this you know, concept which he calls G0. He said the United Nations dysfunctional, G20 doesn't work, G8 is a joke, G7 a laughing stock. We're down to G0. Nobody gives a rat's ass about the global picture. It's everyone for themselves. And I think that's what we need to reverse because I think now with things like yeah. currencies or cloud, that's the easy part. But once we get into, say, you know, the intertwinedness of healthcare and technology and innovation that's going to happen, or what we need to do in the environmental space, there we need to think as global environments. And I think, honestly, this 21st century is going to be, you know, fail or make, it's going to be break or not. But if we don't figure out a way to deal with these global issues as global mechanisms, we are not going to advance as society. And I fundamentally fact, hope we, that I'm going to see may that. Not even, we may not survive as a species if we don't fix this. Exactly. Yeah. To your point. And I think that's what I fundamentally hope that I'm still going to see before you know I pass away, because I think if I see a shimmer of hope in that direction, I'm confident we'll figure it out technologically. But I think we need to dream about these opportunities to figure out global mechanisms to deal with these global possibilities. Global governance um, and or in some capacity, like shared a shared responsibility. The way I talk about it in techno socialism is, is, is the rise of techno socialism book. Is I talk about the fact that we have to start competing for the human species instead of against each other. Yeah, uh, that's a but, nice way to phrase it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I, so I, am, I am still the dreamer with open eyes. I, I don't know if you know that that wonderful poem by Lawrence of Arabia. It's actually in Literary Machines, one of my favorite books. This is the book that Ted Nelson wrote, which is like the precursor of everything that we have. But one of the things he puts in the book, which I love is he he puts that poem by uh, Thomas uh, Lawrence of Arabia. All men dream, but not equally. Those who dream by night in the dusty recesses of their minds wake up in the day to find it was just vanity. But the dreamers of the day are dangerous men, for they may act their dreams with open eyes to make it possible. I am still an absolute dreamer with open eyes. And I think that's what all futurists should be. Wow, that's great. That's a powerful note. Tell us, well, tell us about your, your new book. 
Yeah, yeah. Tell us about the Phoenix and the Unicorn, um, and uh, you know where can we order it? And um... go to my website www.peterhinson.com. Um, and the Phoenix and the Unicorn was really—I was getting tired of some of the unicorn stories because every conference you went to it was Uber and Airbnb. You could see people in the audience thinking, "Yeah, but it's nice, but we're never going to be Airbnb." And I wanted to find a ray of hope for traditional companies that could reinvent themselves. Since then, I've expanded the list of animals. I, I talk about ponies—you know, the small startups who want to be a unicorn. I talk about the Godzillas who are, you know, the big tech companies who seem to be out of this world. And some companies might become phoenixes, but not everyone. Some will become dinosaurs, but most of them are what I call King Kongs now. They're big and loud and no idea how they got there. But if you're interested in that, you know, www.peterhinson.com. Very good. Fantastic. Peter, it's been a great pleasure chatting with you. You're very lively and engaging with super vivid examples. I've enjoyed every minute of this. It's been such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you very much for having you and good luck with the rest of the show, Brett and Robert. Thank you. Yeah, you know, we're, uh, we're I don't know, we're like 14 weeks in. So, um, but yeah, it's it's just, uh, you know, Robert and I continue to comment on the fact that we, we love listening to this stuff. Uh, you know, we'll often listen back to our own episodes and I haven't done that <laughs> on Breaking Banks for many years. Oh, that's really it's, cool. It's cool. But uh, thanks for joining us. You've been listening to The Futurists. It's produced by our US-based team. Uh, in the producer's chair today is Elizabeth Severance. Uh, support from uh, Kevin Hersham on the audio desk and um, uh, Carlo and uh, Sylvie on the uh, social media side of things. Um, if, if you like the show, if you like the content, make sure to tweet us out. Um, tell other people about it. That's how we uh, get get more more audience uh, built that helps us in in turn uh, support the ongoing uh, longevity of the show with sponsors and so forth leave us a five-star review wherever you download the podcast all of that will help um, but uh, you know from from us uh, signing off for this week uh, we you know stay tuned join us again next week and we will see you in the future in the future well, that's it for The Futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did. Please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review that really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at, at Futurist Podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.